Almighty God, come now in the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, and open the scriptures to us this morning. We pray, Lord, that uh, the mystery of, of this amazing moment in the life of Jesus where his glory as your son is revealed and where heaven and earth overlap, that that would, that would take on new depth of significance for us this morning. Grant me, the preacher of your word, the ability to speak clearly and to make good sense, Lord, inspired by your spirit, led by your spirit, and grant all of us together the ability to hear and receive what you would lay on our hearts this morning through the scriptures. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. 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 You may be seated. Uh, my, my name is Ben Sharp. I am the canon missioner. I'm the canon missioner for West Virginia and Appalachia. I used to be the pastor at this church. In fact, I was the planting pastor, the planting priest at Christ Church way back when. Uh, so now you have a, a new father in Christ, uh, Father Benji Davis, and that makes me your granddaddy. <laughs> and you know what? You know, grand, you know what grandparents do, don't you? They, they come and they spoil the kids and mess them all up, all the good stuff you taught them, and then we hand them back to you, and uh, that's what I plan to do with Father Benji today in this sermon. No, not really. I'm so thankful to be here, especially on this Sunday, because today, August the 6th, is the date in the Christian calendar where churches throughout the world who are rooted in the great tradition of apostolic Christianity celebrate this amazing event, which we call the Transfiguration. So this is the feast of the Transfiguration of our Lord. And in today's passage of Scripture from Luke's Gospel, the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ is front and center. We certainly notice that. He becomes dazzling, dazzling bright. There's a word there somewhere. <laughs> and at that transfiguration, uh, Luke says that when Peter and James and John became fully awake on the mountain, it says that they saw, they beheld his glory. They saw his glory, and we are to see his glory here as well. But the amazing thing here in this passage is that when Jesus is transfigured so that his glory is revealed, in a moment that looks a lot like triumph, there is a direct connection to where his glory is revealed on the cross. Here's the important point. Please write this on your hearts. We cannot separate the glory of Christ at the transfiguration from his glory that is revealed when he is lifted up. In fact, John's gospel repeatedly refers to the crucifixion. In John's gospel, Jesus uh, repeatedly refers to his crucifixion as the Son of Man being glorified. We cannot separate Christ's glory from his suffering. The intentional literary arrangement of Luke's gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit actually makes that point. It unites Christ's suffering with his glory, right? At the beginning of the passage, the scripture we just read says, Now about eight days, eight days after these sayings. What sayings is Luke referring to? Well, you can go back to Luke 9.21 where it says, And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests, and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. A, a prediction of his death, his suffering and death. And then immediately after the events that we read this morning, Jesus says something almost identical 
in Luke chapter 9, verses 43 through 45. Listen to this. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. And while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, and I love the way he says this. This is how it's translated in the ESV. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So Jesus foretells his death right before and right after the transfiguration. And it is at the transfiguration that we are given a glimpse into God's sovereign purposes and the meaning of all that Jesus is doing on the cross. So at the transfiguration, not only do we get a glimpse of who Jesus is in his glory as the Son of God, as God in human flesh, we are also given a glimpse of the purposes and meaning of Christ's offering of himself for us on the cross. So Jesus foretells that right before this, right before and right after the transfiguration. Jesus is transfigured to reveal the glory that he is going to have at the end of the age when when his work is accomplished, but that is not where the transfiguration stops. And you'll need to hang with me a little bit as I begin to kind of build a foundation here for us to begin to understand and grasp the depth of what God is doing in this passage. Moses, first of all, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. And it says here, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Why these two men? Well, Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. In essence, essence, all of God's revelation to his people Israel, all that has gone before is leading up, all that has gone before in the law and the prophets is leading up to Jesus. And where do we hear the law and the prophets pop up again like that in Luke's gospel? Well, on the day of resurrection, do you remember this? When Jesus comes and joins with two downhearted disciples who are walking on the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion, they are unaware of the resurrection. And he comes and he says, what are you guys talking about as you walk along the way? And they said, well, are you the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't know what has happened in these days? Well, the irony there is he's the only person in Jerusalem who did know what had happened in those days. But then it says this, and beginning with Moses, this is Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, the law and the prophets. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's because what is about to unfold as Jesus leaves the mountain to begin his walk to Jerusalem has been been God's plan. This has been God's plan from the beginning. Now, while in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all recount, all three of those synoptic gospels recount the transfiguration, Luke is the only one, listen guys, Luke is the only one that tells us what Moses and Elijah were talking about with Jesus. Did you know that? It says this in verses 30 and 31 of Luke 9. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke, listen, and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. It says that they spoke, listen, of his departure, but What that word actually is in the Greek is this, his exodus. 
he, Moses and Elijah spoke with Jesus about the exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Luke is the only one that says it like that. Don't you remember what that means? The exodus is God's mighty, definitive saving act in the Old Testament. Remember that at, at the exodus, Moses led God's people. Moses led, led God's people out of slavery, out of bondage, into freedom in the land of promise. And what Jesus accomplishes in Jerusalem is God's ultimate exodus for his people. Through his death on the cross, the liberation of all of humanity to our slavery, to sin and the power of death is broken and we are delivered out of Pharaoh's bondage. This is the hinge point of Jesus' ministry. Up until this point, Jesus has been on an itinerant ministry of proclaiming the kingdom of God and demonstrating the inbreaking of the kingdom through his mighty acts of power. But beginning at this moment that we heard this morning at the transfiguration, we come to a new stage of Christ's ministry. Instead, now Jesus is headed to Jerusalem in a journey that ends on the cross. And this is what we hear right after the transfiguration, Luke 9, 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The transfiguration, dear friends, listen, the transfiguration is the glory before the cross. Jesus descends the mount only to go to Jerusalem for the passion Every Christian, listen, this is so important. There's so much error uh, that's just swimming around with us in this sea of Western culture that this really needs to address. And here it is. Every Christian living comfortably in the Western world needs to be constantly reminded of this. Christ's glory and his eternal sonship are inseparable from his role as the suffering servant. You cannot know, beloved, you can't know Jesus in his glory if you don't want to know him in his suffering. If you have room in your life for only the glory of Jesus, you don't know the Lord Jesus. Because really, the glory that we see on the transfigure, at the Mount of Transfiguration is not the full glory. Jesus is glorified in his suffering too. In fact, the events of the transfiguration, if we are to read this aright, are literally the mirror image of Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection. Now, I can't remember where I read this. I think I'm, uh, I, I'm my people want to know, are you, are you reformed? Are you Arminian? I said, well, as soon as I catch up with the 1500s, I'm going to get right in that debate. Because I'm stuck in like 500 A.D. And I'm working there. I'm working in the patristic era. Actually, I am, I am, just to put your hearts at ease, I am sufficiently reformed. I'm as, I'm as reformed as the 39 articles of religion. But seriously, there's this way of thinking that comes to us from the patristic period. And I've never thought an original thought. I hope I never have to. Uh, but I don't remember where I read this. But I, it sounds very patristic to me. And it could be that I'm the one that said it, because I'm old enough to be almost patristic. 
But here it is. Listen to this mirror image that we're given here. At the transfiguration, Jesus goes up on the mountain. At the crucifixion, Jesus is lifted up on the cross. At the transfiguration, Jesus is between Moses and Elijah, fulfilling the law and the prophets. At the crucifixion, Jesus is between two criminals, taking upon himself the sin of the world. At the transfiguration, Jesus' clothes become radiant and his face shines like the sun. At the crucifixion, Jesus is, Jesus is stripped of his clothes. His clothes are the prize of gambling soldiers. And his face is disfigured beyond recognition, beaten and bruised. At the transfiguration, Peter wants to stay. Let's build some shacks right here, and we'll just camp out at Camp Mount Transfiguration. But at the crucifixion, Peter and the disciples flee in terror when Jesus is executed. At the transfiguration, God comes in the cloud of radiant glory and speaks to the disciples, affirming his well-beloved son, his chosen one. At the crucifixion, day is plunged into darkness. God seems absent, and Jesus cries out in desolation and dereliction because the Father has turned his back on his scapegoat son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken? Now, why is that? Why would Christ's glory be so connected to suffering? It sounds perverse. By the way, we're not Buddhists. The scriptures do not teach us that life is suffering. So why is glory so connected to suffering in Jesus? And here it is. Because the glorious God who comes to us in Jesus Christ is love. Self-giving love is the life of the eternal Trinitarian community. And when self-giving love encounters a fallen, sinful world, it is inseparable from suffering. Anyone, this is 1 John 4, 8 through 10, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might have life through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Think of the love a parent has for a child. The love that is poured out on that child as an infant is a source of limitless joy for parents and, yes, for grandparents. And if that child grows up and rebels and rejects that parent or takes a path of self-destruction, all of that parent's love For that child becomes suffering. Or if a child is struck down by disease or accident because of the sheer fallenness of the world, that parent's love becomes suffering. To genuinely love anything or anyone at all opens us up to the very real probability of suffering in a fallen world. That's why, that's why glory is connected to suffering. And if we are united to Jesus Christ by the new birth and sealed with the Holy Spirit, when the tra- then, then at that point, if you're a born-again, baptized, spirit-filled follower of Jesus Christ, 
the transfiguration is a preview of our lives in Christ. We cannot experience the glory we are created for in Christ unless we embrace his cross and welcome his suffering into our lives. To love Jesus and to love the world that he came to save means that we will be wounded by this world. In fact, that's what Paul says in Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. In order that we may also be glorified with him. Our brother Timothy Keller, who recently went home to be with the Lord, said this, Jesus Christ did not suffer so that you would not suffer. He suffered so that when you suffer, you will become like him. He suffered so that when you suffer, you will become like him. The gospel does not promise you better life circumstances. It promises you a better life. We cannot separate the glory of Jesus and we cannot, from his suffering, and we cannot participate in his glory unless we are willing to be united to that suffering. You know, another sufferer wrote just this week, you might have read this. I talk every day with Jesus about my chronic disease. I beg him for healing, complete and miraculous healing. However, I am committed to accepting his will in my life. I give my suffering to Jesus as I participate in his suffering on the cross. He also participates in my suffering. What a privilege it is to be selected to suffer with Jesus because in those moments... We are, if we will give our suffering back to him, we are united to him. Here's the amazing thing. Because of the completeness of Christ's victory, of the, because of the greatness of his conquest, he makes our present suffering capable of being the context of experiencing his glory. And you know where that really finally completely overlaps? I didn't, I didn't share this parallel with you, but I, I think I will right now. You know, here between the transfiguration and the cross, you remember after the transfiguration event, Jesus resumes his usual form. He offers reassurance, and then he tells those men who are with him to not tell a single soul what they had just seen. But after the crucifixion, Jesus appears in resurrected glory to the faithful women who came to the tomb, and he tells them not to be afraid and tell everybody that he is alive. His victory makes even our present suffering capable of being the context of experiencing his glory. Until Jesus comes again in victory and the kingdom of God is fully consummated. Oh, dear Christian, listen. For every Christian, our moments of greatest joy will be tinged in this world with the sufferings of Jesus. And dear Christian, our greatest sufferings in this world will be mingled with the glory of Jesus. That's the way it is. And every bit of that is God's providence to conform you and me to the image of his son. We could call the transfiguration preview of coming attractions. Not just for Jesus' glory, but for ours as well. Hold on to him at his transfiguration and cleave to him on his cross. And you will experience what God has in store for you, a transfigured life where his glory is revealed in you in the likeness of his son.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.